Welcome to the Abundant Life Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by our guest speaker. For more information about Abundant Life Church, please visit www.abundantlifechurch.org. A few months ago, or a couple of months ago, I think it was, I was here with you, and I talked about something that I... I and I have to interject this thought. I, I can't help but remember when I was back a long time ago when I was young that my pastor, he had a, a habit of saying something and he did it quite often. He would always have this disclaimer. He'd tell the congregation, and I'm sure you've probably heard this, don't get offended if I'm pointing at you because I have three coming back at me. And I think if a minister ever stops ministering to themselves, then somewhere along the line they have lost their ministry. Because whatever applies, whatever applies to you applies to me. And there are no big eyes and little U's in God's kingdom. None. We're all, we all have to travel the same road. I, I'm happy to have with me today my good friend Dylan Eastwood. He's somewhere here. And he and I have a lot of very interesting conversations. We have solved the problems of the world many, many times. And we were, we were talking yesterday about the importance of our relationship with God. And I have an analogy that I have used in living for God for many, many years. And... It's probably a poor analogy, but it's mine anyway. And I used to, uh, I used to own a business in Las Vegas. And, of course, if you've ever been to Las Vegas, you know that there are a lot of things out there they do that you think are probably bad. And people say the city of Las Vegas is the city of sin. Well, I've got some news for you. It's sure no worse than Milwaukee. And it's sure no worse than Austin, Texas. And so having been out there and during my, during my wonder years, I made a lot of money and I came up with this idea that me and another guy decided we should buy a casino. And so we found one that we could buy that was reasonable. And nothing's reasonable in Las Vegas, but... It was reasonable. And so we started the deal to, to get our casino and hotel in Las Vegas. And I had an office that was right on the Las Vegas Strip. And I mean, right on the Strip, that's where my office was. So I, I had access to everything. And since a lot of my clients were people that were in the hotel and, and gambling industry... I did a lot of business with all of those people. In order to own a Las Vegas hotel and casino, you have to actually take classes, no matter who you are. And you have to learn the gambling industry. You have to understand what gambling is. And you have to learn the odds and what the odds are on different games. And so it is a lot entailed in that. And I was much involved in the playing of cards and... uh, so I, I used to play poker a lot. 
And I played with the best poker players in the world. Isn't that something? From a poker player to a preacher. And, and I gambled. I mean, you can't hardly do those things in Las Vegas, not gamble. And so after all of that's in the past, I still look back a lot and I realize that everything that the people do in Las Vegas, we're doing here. Now, forget the cards and the dice. And, and if you know what they call a dice table, it's got another name, which I prefer not to use. But in all of the gambling in Las Vegas, it's all rigged. You probably never thought of that, did you? It's all rigged, except two games that are not rigged. You can't rig them. You can't rig the dice table, and you cannot rig the blackjack table. Now, I don't want all you people to sit back as if, what's he talking about? Please. Spare me. And so during those days, learning the rules of the games and then playing in so many of those games, I realized that gamblers really do have a serious problem because 95% of the people that come to Las Vegas have no clue what they're doing. And they play what they, the, the nickname for the machines, the, the slot machines, was the one-armed bandit. That's what they call them. They still do, even though there's no longer the handle to pull. They still call them the one-armed bandit. Why? Because they steal your money. So that was the whole point of that. Now, you're probably wondering where in the world I'm going with this, but at least you're getting an education, and some of you will probably go online and start gambling. So I, I started using this, Brother Kylie. I thought, I'll take this knowledge that I had from that life. I mean, normally for whatever life we came from, we, we try to filter some of that over and see if it has any value. It took me a long time to realize that getting stuff out of Las Vegas wasn't real valuable in the pulpit. But I did find some principles that made sense. And so I started to talk about those things of how we say stay away from Las Vegas because it's full of gamblers. Can I tell you that the percentage of gamblers in this room are probably as great here as they are in Las Vegas? Now, you're thinking of cards and dice and, and slot machines. I'm not talking about that at all. Gambling is a game of chance. It's where you're trying to beat something that the odds are stacked against you. And that that's pretty much de describes us. That's why we'll buy houses that we can't afford because the computer said we could. That's why we buy automobiles that we don't need because the computer said you could afford it. And you're willing to toss the coin or, or spin the bottle or whatever it is to do. You're going to take a chance. You're going to gamble and maybe gamble away your future based on an idea or a desire of something you don't even need. So yesterday... We had this little conversation and I brought up blackjack. I think she's ready to play. And I brought it up and I actually staged a poker game in a church one time. Pastor had no idea they had one of those 
those, you call them cafes, you know, that churches like to have. They'll have a cafe where everybody comes and you play games and you fellowship and they're singing and so on and so forth. That's what they were having. It was a big one, man. There were a lot of people there and I was looking around and I thought, my goodness gracious, a lot of people turned out for this. wonder if they'll all be in church tomorrow. And so I saw all of that. That went over. It'll come back down in a few minutes. And I, I, I thought, hmm, I thought I'll, I've never been there before. So it was new to me. And so I went over to this table where they were playing some sort of a card game, a slapjack or some of that. That kind of game never interested me. And, but they were playing that game. So I went over and I said, do you gentlemen mind if I sit in? They said, no. And I said, mind you helping me out here? I want you to help me out with something. And they said, okay. I said, I'm going to deal out cards to each one of you all the way around the table. And I said, I'm going to turn, I'm going to put two down, turn four up. And I said, when I, or three up, and I said, when your pastor walks in, I'm going to deal the next card up to every one of you. And I said, sir, you're on my left here. I want you to say, I check. That means you don't want to bet. So you check it to the next guy. And he says, okay. And the next guy, I said, I want you to get, everybody get money out. And put, they put money all over the table. And I said, now, when he comes in, I want you to move a $5 bill out to the middle of the table. And there'll be a pile of money out there. And I said, and you say, I'll bet. And then the next guy set him up to raise. I had it, I had it lined out. So we're sitting there and we got money. And of course, people around the building have no idea what we're doing over there. They're watching to see what's going on. We got money. There's money involved there. That always attracts preachers and, and Christians' eye when you see money. And so they, they saw that. So sure enough, the pastor come walking in. And when he walked in, I said, okay, now. So we started and he walked over and he's smiling from ear to ear. You know, he's happy to be there. He had his hand in his pocket. And as he watched, his smile began to dissipate. And, 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 and I noticed two or three times he formed words that would not come out. And he, he was talking to the people and, and, and then this guy said, well, I'll, I'll, I'll bet, I'll, I'll raise your bet by five. And he pushed this money. And this pastor finally, he said, stop. What, what, what are you doing here? I said, wait, wait. I said, all I, since I've been here, all you've talked about is building a new building. I'm having a fundraiser. I thought he was going to cry. And so we told him what we were doing. It was a joke. That's what gambling is. It's a game of chance. Cards that you've never looked at. You're willing to place your money out there and say, hey, I'll bet that that next card is going to be the one I need. Chances are it's not going to be the card you need. It's not. Same way with the dice. People, they, they, they've got the dice in their hand and they're rolling the dice. And you've got a, a line of people over here that's betting that he's going to roll the number they want. And this group over here is betting that he's going to roll the number they want. Everybody's betting on a mystical number that chances are it's not going to come to the bulk of them. That's what gamblers are. In, in, in Asia and in the Middle East, they gamble with guns. It's called Russian roulette. They actually do that. And they're betting that the, that that one shell that's in that chamber of six is not in the shell in the in the chamber that he's fixing to pull or snap the gun on. Of course, when you lose, you you never get to play again. Your your career is over. That's what gamblers do, and most of you would say that's distasteful. I would never do that. No, you wouldn't gamble away your hard-earned money. You, you have better sense than that. You would never take a chance on jeopardizing your career or jeopardizing your financial status as it is right now. But you will come to a church 
that preaches the truth of God's word that tells you about the new birth and the power of the future and and how that you can see miracles and signs and wonders and you will gamble that it's not necessary for you to make a decision for Jesus Christ on that day. You're betting that another day is going to come and that you can have the opportunity again and chances are you will but the chance always exists that you won't. So do the biggest gamblers really live in Las Vegas? Or are they sitting on pews all over America today, gambling, betting with the most prized possession that they have? Do you know how many ranches used to get lost back in the old, if you you read Western history? Do you know how many ranches were won in poker games? That a guy was so convinced that the hand he was holding was so good that nobody else at the table could beat him and he would bet the deed to his ranch on a poker hand. What an idiot. I used to be an idiot. And I probably still am to some degree, but I'm not as bad an idiot as I was. Number one, I don't have no ranches left. And, and so, you understand the principle. So our conversation led to blackjack yesterday. And I said, when you're playing blackjack, I mean, it's, it's, it's not as simple a game as you might think. But different than other card games, I told, I told Brother Eastwood, I said, you're not playing against anybody at this table. All of the other players, it doesn't matter what they have. What matters is what you have. And the only one that you're playing with that you have to compete with is the dealer. He's in control of the game. I told you this was probably a bad analogy. But you're welcome to use it. I don't mind sharing it. That's the way it is in living for God. I don't care what so-and-so did to you. Well, if Brother Cardle had been nicer to me or if, if he'd have said this or said that, then it would have been, well, I visited that church, but you know they're not very friendly. They didn't speak to me at the door. So all of those things don't matter. Because when you stand before God on the final day of time for you, and you say, well, if so-and-so, if Kylie, if, if this one or if that, that doesn't matter because they're not in your game. Your game is consists of two players, you and God. And the only one that you have to talk to or answer to is God. There is nobody else that can make your decisions for you. Nobody can make you be lost. Nobody can make you be saved. Only you have the power to do that. Only you. You have to make the decision whether you're going to be saved or lost. It's not the fault of the church. It's not the fault of anybody. People may do bad things to you, but you get to have the final decision. You're the one. Every one of you. Divorces are not somebody's fault. You have to pull the trigger. You have to make the decision. Living for God is no different. If you want the blessings of God... You have to make the decision to go after the blessings of God. If you ever learn how to isolate yourself from everybody else when it comes to God and say, God, my relationship is with you. Nobody can pluck me out of your hand. Jesus said, nobody can pluck you out of the hand of God. When you get into the hand of God, you are safe there. The only way you can leave the hand of God is to make a conscious decision to walk out. 
Well, how do you walk out? Same way you walked in. It's that simple. So I think the first thing we have to do is eliminate all of these other situations. Here we are today, abundant life. It's August 14th. It's a great day. It's Jacob's birthday. My boy from Texas. It's Jacob's birthday. How old are you, Jacob? 26. I knew that. It's also a good day. Today, 51 years ago, today I got married. 51 years ago, August 14th. So it's a great day. But the greatest thing about today is, is that it's different from any other day in your life. Because today is a unique day. This is the day that the Lord has made. And he said, this is how you should feel about it. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Notice that it's an I. That is a personal pronoun, I, that I will rejoice. Nobody else. I'm not worried about anybody else. This is between me and God. Every morning when I get up out of the bed, it's a day that I start with me and God. Nobody else. Nobody can make me leave. Nobody can make me go. Nobody can tell me yes. Nobody can tell me no. It's between me and God. I have to decide today if this is a good day or a bad day. I have to decide today if I'm going to serve God or not serve God. I'm going to tell the truth or tell a lie. I get to pull the trigger on everything. And nobody, nobody can take the responsibility away from me. Nor can I blame anybody. Nor can I stand in the presence of God and say, God, I would have if it's his fault. If he had done, forget him. He's not part of the equation because you had the ability, you had the power to say regardless of what they say, regardless of what they do, regardless of what they've done to me, I am going to make a conscious decision on my own, by myself, with nobody, that I will serve you. Period. Nobody can stop me. I will serve you you and I'm going to do it regardless of what happens if it's a sunny day or a rainy day if it's 80 degrees outside or 30 below I have made my mind up my heart is fixed I am going to serve you if you come to God with any other idea in mind it will not work for you there is only one way you can come to God and that's in a package marked 100% anything outside of that is unacceptable isn't that awful? It's unacceptable. So how do, I, how do I make such a decision? How do I know where to go or what to do? How do I, I know where the right place for me to be is? And how do I even know if this is the right church? There are a lot of people got signs just as nice as yours and some have nicer. And their church is probably within five minutes of here where the pastor looks a lot better than you do. And there are probably people with more money. You can, you can, all of these equations can work for you. And, and if, that's, if that's what motivates you. I was preaching in a church one morning and I did something very odd. I, I told a young woman in the church. I walked back and got her by the hand and I said, there are some people in here. They need something special from God. Something very special. It may be healing. Or it could be some other sort of a miracle in their life. I said, I want you to help me today. And she looked, she was very innocent. And she said, 
me? I said, yes. I said, I want you to come help me. I took her by the hand. And I said, come on now. I said, now there's somebody right up in here. that Now you may think this is a little crazy. I said, right up in here. You, you pick them out because they need, they need something from God. So she goes to this man. And she said, him? And he was sitting like on the second row. And I said, sir, do you mind if I pray for you? He said, no, I've never seen him before in my life. He said, no, sir, not at all. I actually anointed him with oil and I prayed for him. Unbeknownst to me, he was wearing some kind of a device underneath his coat that was to monitor pain and to keep pain away, whatever. And I didn't know that. But the moment we prayed for him, the pain left. He took the device off and threw it down on the seat. She started crying. My girl did. I said, come on, there's another one. And we walked across the church, maybe way to the other side. And she, she, she's trembling now and her lips are stammering. And, and she points and the tears are running down her face. And there's a, a couple sitting there with two children. She pointed. She said, them? And I said, okay. And I walked over to them and I said, hi, ma'am, what is your name? And, and she said, my name is so-and-so. She started to cry. I said, well, is this your church? She said, I've never been here before in my life. She said, in fact, my husband and I got up this morning and while she was speaking, he got up and started toward the altar and fell down at the altar and wept like a baby and started praying and the spirit of God began to fall. And her wife looked at me and she said, we woke up this morning and said, we need to be in a church. Our children are going to grow up without God, but we don't know where to go. So we decided we'd patrol the neighborhood and see if we could find a church. And when we drove by this one, something spoke to us and said, pull in there. This is the place you need to be. Ladies and gentlemen, can I tell you, you didn't arrive here by accident today. The great spirit of God moved upon you. You didn't get up and say, well, I wasn't going to go, but I'm going to go today. You got up because the spirit of the Lord initiated contact with you. And God decided that you needed to be in the house of God. God decided before you went to bed last night that you needed the love of God in your heart. That's why you're here. You're not here on happenstance. You're here by design. I'll tell you what's wrong with the churches in America. We have lost sight of the new birth. The new birth as it's called. And the reason it's called the new birth is that when Jesus introduced it, he told people, started with Nicodemus. In the third chapter of the writings of John, it started with a man by the name of Nicodemus. Why would you name your child Nicodemus? I guess you call him Nick for short. And Nicodemus, he, he initiates this conversation with Jesus about how, how, can, how can I get saved? How can I, how can I do the right thing in my life? Just like some of you right now are pondering questions about what should I do and and what about tomorrow and what about next year? Then you look at the political climate and it's frightening. It's it's frightening. Us older ones that have grandkids and great-grandkids, we're terrified at what's happening. Don't kid yourself. We're terrified at what's happening because not for ourselves, we're old. Who cares? But because we look at the little children we love, the little darlings, and we're thinking, God, what is their future? What future do they have in this climate? They have none because God is quickly being crucified again and again and again, and the move is on to push him completely out of man's eyes. 
get him out of the out of the church. And they're there there that we heard this yesterday, and you've heard it before. It was long before this. All these things that are before Congress now to do away with tax exemptions, to do away with the freedom of speech, to do away with the rights of a church to have a service. He wants to silence the church. Do you think that all the things that are happening in America were designed to pick out certain groups that they don't like? No. It was all designed to work its way to the core value. Hey, you got to start at the root, don't you? Paul said the root of the problems of the world is the love of money. So if that's the root of the problems of the world, I will ask you, what is the root of the goodness of the world? See, you got to destroy the root. So what is the root of the goodness? What would you think the root of the goodness of the world is? Would you agree that it's God? That's the root. So if you want to destroy the goodness that's in the world, whatever's left, and it's not much, if you want to destroy it, you got to get God out of the picture. You got to get him out of this. You got to get him out of people's lives. You got to get them disconnected, unplug them. And that's what's really trying to take place is they want to unplug every human being they can from their relationship with God. And when we get unplugged from God, then the good thing leaves and there's only two powers that be, good and evil. And when we leave the good we go to the evil that's like light and darkness there's no such thing as darkness it's simply an absence of light there's no such thing as cold it's an absence of heat evil is the absence of good and when evil abounds evil abounds he said in the last days there would be a a surgence of evil that would sweep across our planet. People would become, they would become haughty and high-minded and heady. They, they would be, they, they, they don't have no, no sense of, of feeling for other people. He said the love of many will wax cold. That meant grow cold. The love of many would grow cold. Have you noticed that lately? Have you noticed how mean people are? Dear God, when I was a kid, it was unheard of that somebody would just drive through the streets of Milwaukee and kill five people. Exactly. But look at us now. We're arguing on whether we should kill the baby at nine months pregnancy or just let it be born and see if we like it. And if we don't like it, we kill it then. That's our America. That's what our children are going to grow up in. Is that what we want? Jesus had an alternative. And in the world of Nicodemus, even his world was nothing like ours is now. But Nicodemus recognized that something was wrong. And he wanted to know how to change. And so Jesus said, change is simple. Here's all you do. you got to be born again. Oh, yeah, that's, oh boy, that's real simple. Nicodemus is thinking, so how do I go back? Now, this is a trip I don't want to try to make. Don't even try to make it in your mind. How do you go back to the womb and get born again? Say, hey, mom, first one didn't take. I didn't get what I want. Let's, we're back to this gambling thing now. Let's do this again. I'm not happy with this. That's what Jesus made it sound like. But fortunately, the conversation didn't end there. He says, you've got to be born again, Nicodemus. And at, very, at the very beginning, he tells him, now listen please to this. I, I preach this, he's preached this, but so, somehow we rarely touch on this, what happens in, that, in that, that sequence of events. He says, you've got to be born again. He said, except a man be born again. He cannot see the kingdom of God. Can't see it. 
That's what Jesus said. Two verses later, he repeats himself but changes something. He says, except a man be born again. I'm telling you of a truth. Except a man be born again. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. First you couldn't see it, but now you can't even enter. See there? I say to you, you can't even enter the kingdom of God. Well, entering the kingdom of God, what is the kingdom of God? Let's, let's, let's determine what we're about to enter into here. What, what is it that I can't see if I'm not born again? Well, you can't see the kingdom of God. Paul, it was later that Paul would write in the book of Romans and he would say the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. It's not things you touch. It's not food you eat. It's not meat and drink, but it's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost of God. That's what the kingdom of God is. So what he's saying is that you have to be born again of the water and the spirit so that you can enter into that kingdom of the spirit so that the spirit can live in you and motivate you and push you and pull you. And the only way you can do it is through that new birth. No other way to get it. Contrary to what folks may tell you, you can't get the Holy Spirit any other way. You're not born with it. And then there's some say, oh, well, the moment that I just look up to heaven and say, I like you, Jesus. Boom, you got it now. And then you leave and go do what you was doing before you came. That's why that's a, that's a foul ball. It doesn't work that way. There's a dramatic change that takes place. Now, how could I prove that to you today? And, and I, I'm, I'm going to hurry. You're going to get out early today if you want to get out early. And how do I prove that, that that is true? Well, Jesus goes to Peter one day and he says to Peter, he says, Peter, Satan has desired to sift you as wheat. He said, but I've prayed for you that your faith won't fail. And then he makes this astounding statement. I mean, here's Peter, this is the guy that walked on water. Anybody here ever done that? No? This is the guy that went out and raised the dead and healed the sick. This is the guy that goes fishing. Boy, I would love to go fishing with Peter. Oh, son. As much as I like catfish, God knows if I could catch one that had gold coins in his mouth, I'll bait my hook for that joker every day. He caught a fish that had money in his mouth. So he's done all of these things and all of these accomplishments. And Jesus says to Peter, he says, after, after. Now he's already made his mind up to follow Jesus. Just like some of you in here have. Well, I'm going to follow Jesus. But see, following Jesus is not enough. You can go to South North Milwaukee and follow a prostitute. But that don't mean you've got no relationship with her. I'm crude, man, ain't I? And so he says, after you're converted, then you strengthen your brothers. After you're converted. You know, Peter could have easily said, what do you mean after I'm converted? What's going on here now? I mean, remember, I'm the guy that was in the boat. I, I got out. I walked on the water. I only took two steps, but I did it. No one else ever did that. Remember me? No, no. There's a conversion that yet is yet to come that has to take place. That conversion did not take place until the second chapter of Acts. It was in the second chapter of Acts that after an event had taken place in the upper room, because all of them were instructed to go to Jerusalem, all of the disciples, not the whole world, the disciples. When Jesus went out and met with the 11, he said, all right, now go to Jerusalem and wait there till you, you receive this power from on high. He didn't give them no time frame, nothing, just said, go and wait. 
And so they went and they, they waited. It started out with 500, and it's always important to tell you this. started out with 500 people in the group. The Bible says there were 500 that started, but when, when it finally get, gets down to the cutting, there were only 120 left. So while they're in this upper room, they'd been there eight, nine, almost 10 days. We don't know exactly how long, but they'd been there for a while. And they're, they're waiting. It doesn't say they were having a prayer meeting. They weren't singing. Nobody was jumping up down. No tambourine. None of that was going on. They were just waiting. And suddenly, there came a sound from heaven. Suddenly, there came a sound from heaven. When they reached that point of harmony, when they reached that point of committal, when they reached that point of saying, I mean business this time. You ever came to church and prayed and it seemed like there was a wall between you and God? Well, there was. And you put it there. Wasn't God's wall because he don't have no walls. You put it there and you're the one that can take it down. And, And so they were up there and finally the walls came down. Everybody got on the same page. Nobody was arguing. Nobody was bickering. There was no tail bearing. All of that was gone. Maybe that 380, maybe it went with all of them. Hmm, that's a possibility. 75% had to leave before the other 25% could get anything done. <laughs> Ooh, I hate that thought. And so now they all get together. They're all on the same page. Nobody's talking about each other. They've had 10 days to clear the air. That if something was wrong, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I did that, man. Will you forgive me? You know, I've talked about you. I've, I've, I've told other people about you. I, I haven't been a good brother. I haven't been a good friend. I'm sorry. Forgive me. That's hard to do. It's hard to do. But it's the right thing to do. And I'm going to inject this thought here because I feel like it's necessary. About eight or nine years ago. Now, you may not believe in this stuff. It's okay. If you don't believe in it, it's fine. Go ahead and be wrong. <laughs> I... I had a vision. I was sitting in the back of the church. My wife and I were at home. And I was sitting way in the back. We had our own seat back there. You know how that goes. We had our own seat back there because I was gone most of the time. But I was home this time. But I was in la-la land. I mean, I don't know what was going on. But I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know what was being said. I had a vision. Brother Kylie, I'd never seen anything like that. I looked down at the front of the church. And it's a large church. I looked down at the front, and there was an area like this. It was a long altar area. It was huge. And when I, when I looked, all I could see was gift-wrapped packages. Huge. I mean, they were stacked up so high you couldn't even see the podium. Just packed in the head, ribbons and bows. They were presents. And they were stacked up everywhere. I saw them all, and, and I thought, Lord, what does this mean? And in my vision, this voice told me, said, Those are the gifts that people have brought because the scripture says, if you have ought against your brother, take a gift to the altar and leave the gift and then go and make it right with your brother and come back and redeem the gift. You ever, you know what that means, don't you? When you redeem something, that means you you don't get anything for taking the gift. You have to go and make things right and then you come back and redeem your gift. That means now you get the benefit. Everybody get that? And so... I, I said, what does that mean? He says, they left their gift and were to go and make things right with their brother, but they chose not to do so and never came back to redeem the gift, and it waits there for them. 
But now so many are bringing gifts. This is in the vision. This is in the vision. Now so many are bringing gifts because they have this, this unction to do what's right. But when it comes time to pulling the trigger and doing exactly what is right, they can't do it because they got too much pride to do what is the right thing. Pride will kill you. And he said, now, in their effort to do righteousness, they have stacked gifts across the front of this church and across my church. And the gifts have become a stumbling block to the unbeliever. All because of our refusal to do what is right. And so in this upper room, they got rid of all of that stuff. And there was no stuff standing, but they weren't mad at nobody. There were no bad relationships. They got rid of all of that. And suddenly, the moment they reached that point of commitment, the moment they reached that point to where God could look at them and say, they mean business. They are sincere. They really want to do the right thing. At that moment, suddenly, there came a sound from heaven like as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of a fire. And it set upon each of them. And they all began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit of God gave them the utterance. The fulfillment of the new birth. That's what it was because now the same Peter, the same guy that stood by the fire and said, I don't know him. Three times he denied him. The last time they wouldn't believe him. He said it once, he said it twice, they didn't believe him. So the third time he started cussing. He thought, well, if they hear me cuss, they know I'm not associated with him. Next time you decide to cuss, remember that. Woo. And he started cussing. When he started cussing, they left him alone. They believed he really wasn't one of them. And then he went out and wept in the night. He wept bitterly. Can I tell you the only difference in Peter's repentance and the only difference in him and, and, and poor old, you know, we, we give old, old Judas a bad rap sometime. He didn't do anything any worse than what Peter did. So what was the difference in the two men? Well, one man, instead of repenting, just took the money back, got that gift to the altar. And then he went out and hanged himself. But Peter didn't. Peter went out and wept and begged forgiveness. And now he's in that upper room. And that presence of God, that new birth has filled him now. And the brand new guy, the guy that Jesus said, after you're converted. So the same people that crucified Jesus are in the audience the same people that said, hey, you're one of them. They're in the audience. The same people that threatened him, you're in the, they're in the audience. But Peter, something's happened to Peter. And he walks outside to that massive crowd of 85,000 people. And he says, this same Jesus whom you crucified is now both Lord and Christ. And I got a message for you. And he preached unto them Jesus. And he preached it with such fervor and such excitement and such anointing that when he finished, the crowd began to chant and scream. And they weren't screaming what they screamed at Jesus when he was on the cross or when he was going there. They weren't screaming, crucify. They were screaming, what do we do? What must we do to experience this new birth? How can I get where Peter got? How can I have that kind of a revelation? How can I have that kind of an experience? I want to do exactly what Peter did. I want to get the same thing he got. I want my conversion to be just like his. Did you know that he was an apostle? He represented the other apostles. And the scripture does not say after the day of Pentecost that you should continue 
in the doctrine of the Lord. It says you should continue in the, adopt- the doctrine of the apostles. Why? These guys experienced it. These guys were left a gift. These guys made what happened. Peter steps up and he says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost for the promises to you, to your children, to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. It is the only message that was preached at Pentecost. The day of Pentecost was the birth of the New Testament church. It was the beginning message. It's the end time message. The message has not changed. There are not a a lot of doors that lead to heaven. There's only one door that you can get to Jesus Christ. There may be a lot of roads going to Chicago, but there's only one road that's going to heaven, and you're not going to Chicago. You're going to heaven. If you want to go, you got to travel on God's road. You got to go God's direction. You got to take God's vehicle of conveyance. That's the new birth. If you want that to be part of your life, and it never has been, man, at 1130, it's a golden opportunity. But I said at the beginning, I talked about rebirth of a new birth. That's our problem. What about the rebirth of the new birth? I think that's important because we've made the new birth cheap. Now people think, well, the new birth, I just get it anyway. I can do anything, live any way I want to. Don't have to do nothing to get it. After I get it, there ain't nothing I can do to ever get lost again. That makes a lot of sense. So why would there be a rebirth of the new birth? I will tell you this. You can take it or leave it. Right now, There is a rebirth of the new birth. And that is that men like myself, we are telling people, you need to do a a replay of what happened at Pentecost. And whenever it was that in you, your life, and in your life, whatever happened to you in the beginning, that needs to become a part of your life that occurs, it goes over and over again. In the Bible, in the book of Acts, time and again, they were filled again with the Holy Ghost and again with the Holy Ghost. Why? Because that refreshing and that regeneration is what kept them alive. It's what caused them to be what they were. Too many people come here for a one-time experience. Don't come to God for a one-time experience. When you come to God, it's an everyday event. You gotta die every day. You gotta rise every day. You got to live every day. You have to make a commitment to God that is above and beyond any commitment to anything else. Your commitment to God has to be greater than your commitment to your wife. She's your wife, isn't she? I knew that. It has to be greater than your commitment to your job. It has to be greater than your commitment to relationships. This has to be numero uno, number one. Nothing else is important as this. This relationship decides where you work. This relationship decides where you live. This relationship decides on your relationships. It decides who your friends will be. It decides what kind of music you listen to. It decides on what, you do, what you're going to watch on TV or a movie. It's involved in every facet of your life. And if that's not what you want... Why not go somewhere else that don't think you have to have it? Because don't stay here. Because he thinks you need to do that. I know he does. If he didn't, I wouldn't be here. 
So today, yes, what is today? It's August 14th, Jacob's birth. No, it's Sunday. No, today is the day of salvation. And this is the day that the Lord has made. And every one of you get to do something here today. Every one of you, your name is written down on this day. Now you get the option to either respond to it or you go up and erase your name. So where would you like to be when you leave here today? Do you want to be safe in the hands of God? Or would you like to be like those guys in Vegas? I'll just... One more day. I bet you that God don't come today. How much you want to bet? I bet that I'm not going to die today. I bet I'm not going to have a stroke. I bet I'm not going to have a heart attack. I bet you I'm not going to get cancer before they have church Wednesday night. That's what we're doing all over America. Or you can say, hey, it's not worth a gamble for me. I'm going to take the sure thing. So what is the sure thing? I'm going to walk down there and get what God is offering without question. And I'm going to say, Lord, I'm leaving today with my blessing. I'm leaving today knowing I'm going to make, I'm going to make sure. I'm going to make my call and my election sure. And I'm not going to do it at a table of chance. I'm not waiting on the flip of a card. Had a guy tell me one day, he said, man, I love to eat Chinese food because I read them fortunes. He said, and that kind of helps me plan my next day. That's funny, isn't it? I used to, I didn't say you said it like that. See? It's not a game of chance. This is a game of purpose. There's only two people in it. You and him. You and him. He has no bearing. No, he can do the wrong thing. He can make you mad. You can want to claw his eyes out. You can do all that. You can feel it. And they do that. They do that. That's what men do. <laughs> Except me. I don't do that. But you can't blame anything about your relationship on him. Now, you can say he caused a bad relationship between you and your mom, you and your brother, you and your sister, you and another friend. He can do that. But as far as your relationship with God, he has no power on your relationship with God. And when he tries to make you do things that you don't want to do, and you have to make this decision, I'm not doing that. Should you get mad at him? Should you? Are, are y'all married? No? Boyfriend, girlfriend? Or brother, sister? I mean, you know... A, Help me, help me out here, dear God. Don't let me dig the hole any deeper. Are you thinking about marriage? <laughs> Son, I done got you, boy. I own you lock, stock, and barrel. Nobody can mess up your relationship but you. you don't remember anything else I say today remember that your relationship with God is between you and him you can't cause him to lose out you can make him mad you can do anything you want to to him but you can't make him lose out he has to decide to do that 
And when he makes his decision, he's going to do one of two things. He's going to turn on you like a mad dog and become your enemy. Or he's going to say, God, I'm going to do the right thing and I'm going to pray for Jeff. And he's going to make that his goal, to pray for you. Why? Because you're in error. But he can't enact vengeance upon you because vengeance only belongs to God. No one else. No one else. Did you know that when you refuse to speak to some... I'm not talking to them. <laughs> You're enacting vengeance. I was traveling the other day, just this week. My wife and I, we, we pulled off a place never been in my life. Never been in that place. Didn't even know where I was. I went into a big grocery store to get, get a, 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 something to drink or something. And this lady walks up beside me. And it was obvious that this lady was some type of a, of a Christian lady, perhaps of a Pentecostal persuasion, something of that. And she's standing there next to me. And evidently the manager of this, it was a McDonald's, that's what it was. She was standing and she's talking to the manager and she's evidently witnessing to the manager, trying to get the manager to come to her church. And she gives her this little flyer and says, you need to come to our church. And I'm standing there and, and I'm thinking, you know, that's good. I really, she's witnessing to this lady. So I turned to her and I said, you know, I said, you look like, like you probably attend a Pentecostal church of some sort. She said, yes, I do. And I said, well, that's great. And she said, do you? I said, I do. I said, in, in fact, I'm a minister. She said, do you live around here? I said, no, no, no. I said, we're just passing through. I said, however, I have a friend in this church right over here about six or seven miles away. I said, the pastor there, I know him. I said, I do minister at his church every now and then. We were in Texas. And I said, I do minister for him. And she turned around and said, oh, if you've got relatives in that church, get them out. And I said, well, I don't have no relatives there, but why? She said, that's a terrible church. Now, she's witnessing to the manager of McDonald's. Now I'm thinking, please, someone ring me up and let me get away. <laughs> Evidently, the devil's wife has got inside McDonald's, and I'm talking to her right now. Now, if you feel that way, and you think that you're really doing God a service, I don't care if you witness to half of Milwaukee. If you feel like that, your witness is worthless. 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 If you want God to change you today, God's ready to change you. Well, I'm waiting for the music to start. What if we don't have no music? Well, I'm waiting. Do I feel something? Oh, you're not willing to take God at his word. Whew. Boy, this place is getting tough now. Well, I know, but shouldn't I feel something? Why should you feel something? I guarantee you, if you treat your wife, everything you do for your wife is based on feeling, your marriage is going to be short-lived. How many of you have ever felt like getting up off the couch after you work 10 hours a day, you men? And you're, I mean, you're so tired, you can't hardly get to the couch. And you're laying there, and she comes in there and says, oh, I want you to go down in the basement and clean the basement. You're going to say, well, I don't feel like cleaning. No, that's not the thing to say. That's not the right answer. You can't do things based on feeling. Sometimes you've got to do it because you know it's the right thing to do. When you decide you're going to live for God, you've got a book that's given to you. And what you feel means nothing. You do everything based on what that book says. Why? Because that's the word of the Lord. And the Bible said he has magnified his word even above his name. So would you like today to change your life? Would you like to change your life today? Would you like to make everything brand new? Would you like to start something that, that only you can finish? 
Would you like to have your own gig? I don't know other way to say it. It's entirely up to you. Would you stand with me? Perhaps, perhaps there's something in your way. Perhaps there's, there, there's something in your way and you're not sure really what it is. But usually, if there's something in our way, we put it there. You, you know, every relationship, everything about your life is determined by the 21st letter of the alphabet. You. It's determined by you. You decide. Whatever's going to happen, you're going to do it. My son said something to me this morning early. He said, Dad, he said, I'm preaching about something today. I just wanted to run it by you. And I said, what is it? He said, the next step you take, the next step you take decides your future. Whew. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? But if you wait, if you wait for feelings, you might wait too long. So, I told you I was, I, I did pretty good. Pretty good on time today. Did you notice? Who's clapping? <laughs> I've had a difficult year. I'll just, I'll just tell you. I'm not, I'm not complaining. I'm going to be very transparent. I know that it's taped. I don't care. I, I want to be transparent. I've had a difficult year with just a multiplicity of things. Sicknesses, disease, and loss. Right now, my wife's been living in one room of our house because our house flooded. and It's been that way for ever since I was up here back in June. And... So we've been living like gypsies, so to speak. And I had to go to Lowe's quite often to get material. We're trying to fix the house. And my feelings were on my shoulder. You ever, you ever did that? Had your feelings on your shoulder? And I went several times and it seemed like every time I'd get ready to check out, I got a lane to where there was a, a lady that, that worked at Lowe's. And, and I even asked myself the question first time I seen her. Why would Lowe's hire someone like this? She was a paraplegic. Maybe a quadriplegic. She was obviously birth defects. Because she was so small, this lady was. She had to be 35 years old or so. But she's so small. Brother Dretzka, she could not have weighed more than 50 pounds. And she was, and, and I'm not, certainly not making fun. I want you to understand what I'm saying. Her arms were little short arms and her hands like this that were kind of gnarled and she had no movement and so in order to do this job she had learned how to take that knuckle and hit those keys did pretty good with it and people that checked out in her lane big lows busy area sometimes you had to pick things up and hold them up for her to to get it and so on and so forth it, it was you know it was just I didn't like it and I had enough other worries that I was in a hurry. And so I went into Lowe's about 10 days ago. And as I'm getting my stuff together, I'm thinking about all of my problems. 
and I'm walking back toward the front. And just before I get there, I thought, man, that little girl works on this end. See, now you're going to look at me and say, my God, how could you do that same way you do it? I'm just big enough to tell you about it. And I got, just before I got there, I said to myself, I said, man, I don't want to get in that woman's lane. She's kind of depressing, you know, and I know some of you may lose your respect for me today. That's all right. Sure enough, I walked around the corner and there she was. I didn't know her. I'm, you know, I don't, I don't know her. And I thought, I just don't feel like dealing with her today. She had a high-pitched voice. And so I looked. The next one next to her was busy. So I went on down to the self-checkout. When I got there, it wouldn't take my card. So I went back. I thought, well, I'll go to the guy next to her. He was not as busy as she was. I got in line, and the lady right in front of me was wrapping up her checkout, and something went wrong with the card machine. And I stood there, and you know this. You ever did this? Good Christian gesture. You're not thinking nobody knows knows you, so what difference does it make? This is a good demonstration of you're frustrated. Don't mess with me. I got a chip up here. And all at once I heard this little high-pitched voice said, sir, I can help you. And I got my stuff. I walked over to her checkout and I laid it down. I didn't look at her. First words out of her mouth. Could you pick that up for me so I can scan it? I reached and picked it up. I set it back down. And she said, how's your son? My son who has cancer. Has it bad? I said, excuse me? She said, how's your son? Someone When I was in Lowe's, she had heard me talking to someone about my son, months. And I I wanted to look at her and I couldn't because I felt so small. And I said, my son needs a miracle. She said, and there's people waiting. She said, ever since that day you came in here, I've been praying for your son every day. I just wish he would give me his name if that's not too much so I can take it to church Sunday. And I thought, the one person in Lowe's that I'm trying to avoid is the one person I needed to talk to. And I almost allowed my own selfishness, my selfish attitude, to miss something that changed my life, Sister Dredsky. I wrote my son's name down and I handed it to her and I said, thank you. And I got my stuff and I hurried outside. It was a beautiful day outside and I got out and started across the road, the the parking lot. And I just stopped and I almost collapsed and I began to sob. People were watching me. They thought something was happening to me. I was sobbing. I mean, (laughs) I couldn't stop. I said, God, please forgive me God forgive me please what have I done that I'm so caught up in everything else that I forget the whole purpose of who I am and what I am 
day before yesterday, I get a, an email and I opened it and it said, dear sir, I took your son's name to church with me Sunday and our church gathered around and prayed for your son. And I wanted to let you know that you are not alone. We are with you and we are holding out that God will take care of everything. And she signed it, Sandy, your Lowe's cashier. Rest assured, ladies and gentlemen, that is my Lowe's cashier. For now, that's my Lowe's cashier. I went to my son and I told him what happened. He said, Dad, I'm going down to Lowe's and I'm going to walk up in her cashier's lane and I'm going to say, Sandy, my name is Jerry East. I'm the man with cancer that you've been praying for. Folks, I said that to say this. Nothing, nothing should be so important to you that you can't stop right now and say, God, I don't have a dinner appointment. I don't have a work appointment. I don't have anything so important that I'm going to put you on the back burner. I learned a lesson. I'm going to get me out of the way because you is the problem. I want to get out of the way. I'll get out of the way so you can come and get things right if you'd like to. Anybody? You're your biggest problem. Transparency, it's a virtue. God forgive me. Sometimes the very thing I need is the thing I run from. I just run and run and run and run and run. can't put a price on this this is the greatest thing in the world stop gambling Jesus in your name every one of us God no big and little here God all of us are in the same group every one of us have troubles but you're the healer God troubles broken hearts and broken homes you fix relationships you fill empty spaces God with the things we need there's none like you in all the earth I'm so honored to be in your presence, God. I'm so honored to be in this church today, Lord. Thank you for listening to this Abundant Life Church podcast. We pray it has strengthened your relationship with God and will continue to be a light unto your pathway to heaven. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please telephone our ministerial team at 262-965-5177 or email us at info at abundantlifechurch.org.